Would you please remain standing and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. This will be our New Testament reading. Or you can simply listen to God's word as I read it from this portion of Scripture. And our sermon text will be from Psalm 62. You may be wondering why. Uh, as you know, we've, we finished our um, Zephaniah sermon series last Sunday. Um, and so we're going to be starting a new sermon series in, Oct- in uh, September. But we've been doing the summer in the Psalms in the evening service. And so we're taking the, that evening series. And we, we did Psalm 61 last week. And for our grand finale... For our summer in the Psalms, Psalm 62, we're just doing now in the morning. So um, we'll do this once before break next week with uh, other preachers here while I'm on study leave. And then we'll start Romans um, in the morning uh, when I return in September. But for now, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, and then Psalm 62. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait. Let's turn to Psalm 62. To the choir master... According to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and some of his uh, writings. There's one of them I've always been kind of intrigued by. It's this little book called The Great Divorce. Um, And the basic concept in this book is that there's this tour bus uh, that takes a load of people one day from hell up to heaven. Okay, And so the book is exploring what it's like for those souls from hell to encounter and experience the reality of heaven. Now, um, interestingly, uh, most of them, frankly, don't like it very much. They don't like being in heaven. Um, You have to understand all of this is just a literary device. So he's not trying to say this is literally a description of what heaven and hell are like at all. It's fiction. It's clearly fiction, and that's the way he means it. His point in writing in this way, though, using this sort of literary device is to help us think about this world, to help us think about this life and the way that people in this life perceive and evaluate spiritual things. And he suggests that if we judge by the way people think and have their priorities and, and uh, evaluate spiritual things now, that some people would be really rather miserable in heaven because... Well, I mean, of course, it's not that they'd be happy anywhere else, but the point is that most people don't want what heaven actually is. They don't want what heaven actually is. They don't want what God has actually promised. They want something different. Often just want more of whatever it is we already like in this life, which is, that's not what heaven is all about. Okay, well, anyway, one of the parts of the book that I've always found very striking is how when these people get off the bus they find that the grass of heaven hurts their feet. I don't know if there's grass in heaven, but in the, in the book. So the grass of heaven hurts their feet. What's the point on this? Well, when they walk on this, the grass doesn't bend softly under their footsteps. It feels very sharp. It hurts the bottom of their feet because, as it turns out, the landscape of heaven is so much more solid, so much weightier, so much more substantial than they are. And that kind of symbolism is, has, always, has often made me think of the John Newton hymn where it ends, fading is the world's great pleasure, all its boasted pomp and show, but solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. 
solid joys and lasting treasure. Now, keep that imagery of the grass hurting their feet in the back of your mind because we're going to return to it near the end of the sermon. But first, I want to give you an outline for today. Uh, You could say that this psalm um, gives us a comparison sandwiched in between two contrasts. A comparison with two... A contrast, comparison, contrast. The first contrast is between the rock and the ruthless, verses 1 through 4. And then second comes the comparison between the prince and the people, verses 5 through 8. And then third, we'll go back to contrast, the fading and the firm, verses 9 through 12. Okay? So that's the outline. The rock and the ruthless, the prince and the people, and the fading and the firm. So let's start with that opening contrast between the rock and the ruthless. There is God, this unshakable source of security and stability for David. And on the other hand, there are these enemies of David, these enemies who are threatening him with insecurity, with instability. He is vulnerable, on the one hand, to these very cruel and treacherous people over here. And yet, in the midst of that, he is defended by the Lord, and he is looking to the Lord for help and strength in the midst of that weakness and vulnerability. So he begins, For God alone my soul waits in silence. It's interesting, especially especially with Hebrew poetry. There are many times where the English translations will sort of um, fill in and smooth over um, what actually is a little bit more sparse in the original language. And th- those are just features of the two different language- languages. Hebrew is often more, more sparse. Um, and it's not wrong for the English translations to do this, because if we only translated word for word for word, it often wouldn't make for a good English sentence, and we'd have trouble understanding it. Uh, but I do want you to get a sense for the original here, because, for the original poetry here. If we just went word for word through this, to this first line, we'd get something like this. Only towards God, silence my soul. Only towards God, silence my soul. I'm going to use an unusual illustration here. So don't take this the wrong way. But have you ever had the experience of getting to see a very expertly trained dog. Again, not trying to insult you by comparing you to dogs, but you think about how we admire an expertly trained dog and the way that dog can sit completely still, completely silent, looking with rapt, fixed attention in one direction at its master. is waiting for what word, what look, what gesture might come from the master's voice, the master's hand. What is it going to be? And the dog waits. David here, you can imagine his soul is turned towards God in that expectant, patient, very trusting kind of way. And why is that? Well, it's because he knows that from him comes my salvation. 
He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. See, as long as David is looking at the Lord, as long as that's where his attention is fixed, see, everything else makes sense. Everything else is in proper perspective. And he knows in that moment that I am safe, I am cared for, I am protected. He knows it with great confidence. It reminds me very much of that episode in the Gospels where you remember how Jesus is walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee. And he calls Peter to come to him. Peter steps out of the boat and he too is walking on the water towards the Lord Jesus. And as long as he is looking at Jesus, everything is fine. Remember what it says, but when he saw the wind, see, when he looked away from Jesus, he was afraid and beginning to sink. What did he cry out? Do you remember? He cried out, Lord, save me. So even in that moment of the interruption of his faith, Peter knew the same thing David knew. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Uh, There's a book I think I've told you about before by uh, Ed Welch, Christian counselor, where he says, when uh, the title is, When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God is Small. I think about that title. See, it's when we have too small of a view of God. When we get distracted, when we take our eyes off of him, off of his glory, his power, his sovereignty, his majesty. Well, what happens when we do that is then people begin to loom much larger for us. They seem much bigger in our spiritual field of vision than they really ought to be. Both, and this is important, both in terms of what they might be able to do against us, and in terms of what they might be able to do for us. We tend to overestimate both of those things when our view of God is wrong, when God begins to seem smaller to us. And this psalm, interestingly, deals with both sides of that, both uh, both the threat side of things and the uh, help side of things. Um, And the threat side is what we come to Uh, First in verse 3. So, how long, he says, will all of you, his kind of generic enemies, um, attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? So, what's happened is these people have found David in a weakened, vulnerable position, helpless, defenseless. It's like he's already leaning over. It's this leaning wall, tottering fence. He's already about to fall down. And what are they going to do? They're going to come by and they're going to try to knock him over the rest of the way. They're going to take advantage of that vulnerability. They're going to kick him while he's down. Uh, to use another image for it. Um, there's something commentator Derek Kidner brought out here I thought was really good. Remember what Isaiah says in his prophecy about the Lord Jesus, how a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Jesus finds us Sinners, weak and vulnerable. And it would be so easy for him if he chose just to snuff us out, 
just to knock us down, just to break us the rest of the way. But the Lord Jesus doesn't do that. He is different. He's the opposite of these enemies that David is describing. The Lord Jesus instead finds us in our weakness and he picks us up. He plants us firmly in his grace. But these enemies find David leaning over and they're going to push him the rest of the way down. Um, next, it says these enemies are trying to thrust David down from his high position. Think of, Remember, David is the king, right? And so um, presumably they're trying to overthrow him. And you can think of incidents in David's life where this applies more specifically. For example, the conspiracy of Absalom, where David is actually driven from his throne for a period of time and has to live outside of Jerusalem while Absalom uh, takes over until he's defeated. That's just one example of this sort of thing that happened to David throughout his life. And you think about, just thinking of the Absalom example to begin with, think of all of the deception, all of the lies that went into that. Absalom managing to overthrow his father and put himself on the throne. And he says here, these people take pleasure in falsehood. And it's all the worse, too, because they do all of this hiding behind a veneer, a facade of loyalty, of support for David. It says... They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now, in North Carolina, where I grew up, we have a phrase that uh, sometimes illustrates this. I'm going to translate for you Yankees up here. Um, Just be warned that if you ever hear somebody from my neck of the woods say, Oh, bless your heart. Um, just don't assume automatically that they're saying something nice, because they might not be. They could be, because that can be a, a genuine way to express sympathy, compassion. Oh, bless your heart. It's so hard what you're going through. Bless your heart. But it can also be a way of saying with a smile, oh, you're so ignorant. You, know? you have no idea what you're talking about. I wish I was anywhere else in the world except for having this conversation with you right now. Bless your heart. It's an example of what it's like They bless with their mouths, but inwardly, something else is happening. And we joke about that kind of thing. I can joke about that because it's where I'm from. But actually, it's not just a Southern American problem. Insincerity. Insincerity is a huge problem. It is a problem that plagues the church in our relationships with one another. Insincere Christians. Saying one thing when you're really thinking the opposite. When we pretend kindness. When, our, when, in, when in fact our hearts are very hard, very selfish, and we could really care less about the people that we're smiling at, making small talk with. Beloved, that is not a Christ-like way of treating one another. But it is a very real temptation. We've got to watch out for this. This insincerity is the opposite of what Christ is calling his people to in love. Never forget 1 John 3.18. This is such an important verse for us. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see the difference? Um, Of course, the bigger point here in the psalm, and we can reflect here on, we don't want to be the people who bless with our mouths while inwardly we curse, for sure. Um, but the bigger point of the psalm in context is, what do you do when you're on the receiving end of that kind of insincerity? When other people are pretending to be nice to you, but then they turn around and they stab you in the back. They knock you down when you're at your most weak and vulnerable. What do you do then? And David is giving the answer here when he says, 
For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. And you see in verses 5 and 6 that David goes on, by and large, to repeat what he said in verses 1 and 2. It it comes back again. It's not identical, but it's clearly an echo. It's repetition. Uh, And then he expands on the theme in verse 7. It's like, I have more to say about this than I did the first time. I'm going to expand on it even more. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Remember from uh, last Sunday night, God is that rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is how David sees the Lord. Um, That the Lord is this place that is secure and stable and changeless. And his his promises are reliable. They are that steadfast and sure anchor of the soul that we heard about from Hebrews 6. And we're to see here that contrast between the instability that David feels in verse 3, where he's wobbling, he's tottering, he's leaning over. But in the hands of the Lord, you see, David is safe. In the hands of the Lord, David has a foundation a security that cannot be shaken. It's not going anywhere. Even in the face of these ruthless and insincere enemies. Okay, but as, we, as this middle section goes on, though, we see that there is also a comparison being made. Remember I said the psalm is a compar- has a comparison sandwiched between two contrasts. And the comparison is between King David... And all the rest of Israel. David is saying, oh, we're calling this second point, the prince and the people, you remember. And so David's saying, look, this is who God is towards me as your leader, as your king. And, of course, the Lord had indeed made some unique promises, one-of-a-kind covenant royal promises to David um, and his descendants. And so in that sense, David's relationship with God um, was not something that every Israelite shared in directly. He was a unique person. But you can also say the Lord was not merely David's God individually. Um, Remember that David was not only God's representative to the people, but he was also the people's representative to God. went both ways. That idea of a mediator, go-between, is one of the things that a king would do. And what was true of David, therefore was in a sense true of the entire nation because the whole nation was wrapped up in this union with David, with King David at their head. The whole nation was wrapped up in him. And in verse 8, David is saying, this safety, this stability, this security that I have in the Lord is not just for me, it is for all of us. And he turns from describing himself and his own relationship with God personally to saying, now you people, now you people trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge not just for me, but for us, like king, like people. What's true for David is true for the whole covenant community as well. And so David is exercising this spiritual leadership here. He's saying, this is who I know God to be, both on the basis of his promises and on the basis of my personal experience of his faithfulness to me. And now I'm inviting you, I'm urging you to join me, to follow me, to come with me in trusting him, in pouring out your heart before him, taking refuge in him. And I hope that you can see uh, some of the ways this um, leads us to a, a deeper understanding of Christ's leadership 
as our king, as the son of David, how we can expect salvation and refuge from God because Christ experienced those things from God in his death and his resurrection. And I'm going to get into that a little more later. But for now, I actually want to say a word. It's a little bit more of a direct application straight to those with an office of spiritual leadership right now. And that applies to more of you than you might think. And actually, I want to say a word. I don't do this very often, but I want to now. To the husbands and the dads. I want you to think of David. And to remember that what your family needs spiritually from you is for you to be growing personally in Christ, to become a godly man who is trusting in the Lord, who is pouring out your heart before him, and then is leading, inviting, showing the way for your family to do the same thing by your side and under your leadership. You know, I think, that the American church is full, it's plagued with very passive and selfish and spiritually anemic men who would rather just drift along with the tide than to step up and say, I myself am going to look to the Lord. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to grow in him and in knowing him so that I can then turn around and look at the people that I'm responsible for. And I'm going to say, come with me. Let's trust him together. Let's pour our hearts out before him together as a family, as a household. Let's live our family life as though God is really our refuge together. In the middle of everything that's really hard for us right now, that God is our refuge. He is our rock. And because of him, we together will not be greatly shaken. Follow me. Come with me. But guys, we cannot do that if we ourselves do not begin by waiting in silence for God alone, looking to him with that fixed concentration, expectancy, every nerve of ours like that dog, looking focused on the word that is going to come from our master. That's where it has to begin for our families, and then for the church as a whole. Look at David's conviction here, and just imagine, imagine what can be. Imagine that spiritual vitality of that kind of leadership for the people under his care. That's what our families need from us. That's what the church needs. And this is for all of us now. That is what the world needs. That's what our communities, what our friends and our neighbors and our, and our extended family needs because ultimately this is a message that all of us ought to be carrying to everybody that we meet, shouldn't it be? See, look, God is a refuge for me. My hope is from him. And now I'm inviting you to trust him too. God isn't just a refuge for me. He's a refuge for us, right? Together, come with me. Come and see what Christ has done for me and what he can do for you too. That's the message that the church carries to the world through the Great Commission. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him, because God is a refuge for all of us, if you will only trust him. All right, we come at last to the contrast at the end. 
verses 9 through 12, the fading and the firm. David says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. It's basically saying here all kinds of people, doesn't matter who they are, in the balances, imagine kind of a scale with balances like this, you put something heavy on this side, and then you put all of the people, rich and poor, important, unimportant, great and small, everybody goes on this side of the balances. Together, they all go up as this side goes down. Together, they are all lighter than a breath. That word breath there, it's the Hebrew word you may have heard before, hevel, that you find all over the book of Ecclesiastes, often translated as vanity or or vapor, a vapor. It's just nothing. It's just going to float away. Remember how I said earlier that when we get a bigger view of God, that it's not just we're going to fear people and their opinions less, what they can do against us. This is something else Derek Kidner points out. David has already said, don't fear people. But now he's saying something different. Now he's saying, don't expect too much from them either. Because compared to the weight of the glory and the power and the love of God, any help that they can offer you, there's just no comparison with the Lord. Especially if their version of helping you, quote-unquote, is contrary to the law of God. And that's why he says, put no trust in extortion. See, these sinful ways that people try to help themselves and and, and others, um, if uh, set no vain hopes on robbery. And he says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Not that the Bible is um, against uh, all kinds of wealth building in general, but the Bible consistently teaches that there are always going to be some wealthy people and some less, less wealthy people, and that that's okay, because it, but it's possible for either group to be either godly or ungodly, given their relative wealth or poverty. And that's really the more important thing. The temptation for both, in fact, is really very similar. It's the temptation to set our heart on wealth. The rich and the poor can both do that. Set our heart on wealth. To think that that's what's going to give us security. That that's what's going to give us state safety and stability. But it's not. Whether you have it or whether you don't have it, don't set your heart on it because that's not what's going to keep you safe. That's not what's going to give you security in this life, much less in the life to come. They are not the solid things. They are not the weighty things. They are not the lasting things. Remember that imagery started with from C.S. Lewis of the souls from hell getting to heaven and finding that the very grass felt sharp and hard and painful under their feet because so real, so substantial was the very landscape of that heavenly country. That is the contrast that David is giving us as this psalm closes because on the one side of the scale you have all of humanity with all of its wealth, all of its ingenuity, all of its plans and schemes and on the other side, weighty and substantial, you have the power and the steadfast love of God. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then you get this kind of unexpected ending. You aren't thinking this is how the psalm would end. For you will render to a man according to his work. Okay, so on the one hand, 
just trying to understand why he ends this way. Um, and on one hand, this is, in a broad sense, kind of reassuring for David. It's talking about the justice of God compared to his enemies. So his enemies, of course, are treating him unfairly. They're treating him insincerely. But the Lord, David, can count on to act justly, to act consistently, truthfully, unlike his enemies. So that's a good thing. But I don't know about you. I think there's a sense in which that last line can also be a little bit disconcerting for us. Right? God will render to a man according to his work. And you look at that in the context of the whole Bible. If that line was the whole picture, if that was all the Bible said about the, Lord, the way the Lord was going to treat us, well, then David, Israel, you and I, well, this would not be good news for us. Because what does our work deserve? If God were going to render to us according to our work, the Bible teaches us that we're sinners, right? That our work doesn't deserve a reward. It deserves judgment. As Romans 6 says, the wages, the repayment for sins is, is death. It's not a good thing. But of course, that verse doesn't end there either. It goes on to say that the free gift of God is what? It's eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you remember what I said earlier about the prince and the people. And I told you I was going to come back to this. See, Lord Jesus, the son of David, the Lord Jesus is our king. God is a refuge for us because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus, in fact, perfectly lived out for us the the kind of integrity and trust in God that this psalm pictures better than we could ever do it. Better than David ever did it. See, our work, our obedience, even our trust, even our faith is full of imperfection and sin and weakness. It's broken And all those things put together at our very best deserve nothing from God but condemnation if he were to truly render to us according to our work. But you see, the work of Jesus is different. The work of Jesus is perfect. He is the one who perfectly throughout his life waited for God alone, that fixed and rapt attention on the will of his heavenly Father. It was Jesus who perfectly avoided those twin temptations, both to fear people too much And to expect too much from them. It was Jesus who perfectly entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. And you see, it's because of Jesus' perfect trust. It's because of Jesus' perfect work. That is the heartbeat of the salvation that Psalm 62 is talking about. When it says, from him comes my salvation. Salvation comes through the work of Christ. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, give gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. To whom save thee, who can alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. See, the message of Psalm 62 is that people cannot ultimately harm us or help us. No, the power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. He is our refuge. And you might ask ask yourself, 
okay, well, how do I actually do this? How is it exactly that I myself can take refuge in God and just make that not, not jargon that we just talk about, but a living reality in my life? And there's, there's a lot of ways that we could answer that question, a lot of ways we could work it out in the details. But the simplest answer is the most important one. You take refuge in God by trusting, by resting all of your spiritual weight on the Lord Jesus and his perfect work and his perfect death and resurrection for you. That is the call of the gospel. To take refuge in God is to tell him, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. I am guilty, but Christ is righteous for me. I am a great sinner, but Lord Jesus, you are a great Savior. And so I am looking to you, and I am waiting in silence. I'm resting in the power of your steadfast love for me. Let's pray. Our God, for you alone, our souls wait in silence because from you comes our salvation. You alone are our rock and our salvation, our fortress. We shall not be greatly shaken. Amen.